Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, Los Angeles Times reporter Laura Nelson and senior writer for ESPN's The Undefeated, Clinton Yates. All right, let's start the show. It sounded like she said you're undefeated. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't take many L's in these streets, Sam. You know how I live. <laughs> I love it. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute here at NPR West in Culver City, California, with two amazing guests, Clinton Yates, a senior writer at ESPN's The Undefeated, and Laura Nelson, who covers transportation for the L.A. Times. So you're busy, because a lot of folks transporting themselves through L.A. all the Traffic time. Traffic all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you guys are here, and I'm so glad that I'm playing this song. I mean, you know what it is. There's a reason I'm playing it this week. Did you guys see this study? Uh, there's a smooth criminal study that there I actually there is <laughs> something something commissioned that I missed. There was actually a study about the music video for Smooth Criminal. As you know, there's that iconic dance move in this video where Michael Jackson basically leans forward 45 degrees. Did you guys know that he had special shoes with, like, clips on them to do that? No. You didn't know that? He was cheating? Yeah. So this had actually been known before, but the study brought this back up. Basically, Michael Jackson had special shoes that hooked into a special clip that came out of the stage when it was time to lean. So he had, like, something holding him while he leaned forward. So the study talks about that, but the study also says, all right, you guys knew that that was already happening, but also, even with the clips, unless you have, like, superhuman spine, core, and leg strength, you can't do it. Makes me feel better. They say in this study, uh, quote, trick or not, new forms of dancing inspired by MJ have begun to challenge our understanding of the modes and mechanisms of spinal injury. Ever since MJ entertained us with his fabulous moves, throughout the world, dancers have tried to jump higher, stretch farther, and turn faster than ever before. The rapid rise in popularity of dance as an art and exercise the world over is bound to produce new forms of injuries that may perplex the neurosurgeon. How many people do you think across the world have hit their face on the ground trying to, like, do that Michael Jackson lean. I'd say 5% of the global population is probably... <laughs> Depending on what kind of wedding you're going to, it might be higher. <laughs> higher percentage of people, though, who have tripped up and busted their behinds trying to moonwalk. That's true. I would say it's probably higher. That's true. Than those say 20 that to 25%. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks, Michael. If you want to read the rest of that study, it is published recently in the Journal of Neurosurgery, Spine. All right, let's get into it. Each of us are going to describe how the week of news felt in only three words. Clinton, you're up. All right, my three words for this week are on bended knee. Now, we discussed... It's a great voice to men song. Banger. (laughs) Underrated. Anyway, obviously the NFL. Yes. Because everybody cares about football. And to be clear, I'm a sports writer. I cover sports. Uh, I cover other things as well. But the NFL made some news this week because the owners in the league decided somewhat unilaterally, although there are conflicting reports as to how this decision came about, basically that each team can determine what their policies are going to be while for what happens when the national anthem plays before games. Now, people don't realize that when Colin Kaepernick, who used to play for the San Francisco 49ers, first started sitting, first of all, it started in a preseason game. Hmm. It 
extended to a regular season game when he then took a knee. He started yes. by sitting on the bench. I forgot Something that, that yeah. was noticed by a reporter, a friend of mine, Steve Weish, who works for the NFL Network, and then developed into the take a knee. Well, and then take a knee grew, and Trump got involved, and now this week the NFL decided that a team member doesn't have to be on the field for the anthem, but if they are, they have to stand. And if they don't, or if they protest, teams could be fined. And then there was discussion of the fact that they might even teams might even get penalized, like football penalties for non-football actions, huh. which is bizarre well, on a lot of yeah. levels. The other thing, though, with all of this take a knee business, it wasn't just Donald Trump saying they shouldn't be doing this. Lots of fans of the league themselves were saying, we don't want to see this protest in the games that we love, right? Fans of the league or fans of the concept of what they're protesting. You know, like, sure, anybody can claim to be an NFL fan because you turn on a television on Sunday, but I don't know that there's any real correlation between people who claim to be football fans not watching television and what their actual beliefs are about how black yeah. people are treated in America. Yeah. Those well, plus, are, what does it mean to be a fan? I mean, right. like, what are you supporting? Are you supporting the players and their experiences, or are you supporting the trappings of the organization? What does this mean for the league? Because, you know, what they want to avoid this season is political drama with the president. They, I guess, they must be thinking that this might help the ratings if this all just dies down. But is it going to die down? I don't think so. And I think that because the NFL's PR methods operate so ham-handedly, they don't realize you're causing a bigger issue for yourself by bringing this to such light. Mind you, the limitations on protests are undefined. And Hmm. they say, all right, I mean, I'm sure people can protest if they're standing up. You want to hit that Wakanda salute? Go ahead. You know what I mean? I'm sure people are going to know what it means. Yeah. And that's where the NFL, I think, has messed this up is because they're putting too many chips in a basket of everybody thinks the way that we do. Therefore, this is going to make sense for us to how we should regulate it. You don't know that. It's risky. Yeah. You could cause yourself more problems. Laura, do you have three words? Yes. My three words are men in power, which was <laughs> a um, – even in the 24 hours since I told you guys that was going to be my word, there have been more what, yeah. news items on that point. I mean, you guys saw Harvey Weinstein walking into the New York Police Department. Never thought I'd see that. I didn't either. I But that's been one of the amazing things about the Me Too movement is that I, somehow brave people keep challenging what we've thought would happen, the paradigms of how power works and how powerful men work. And we're seeing that in all different you know, arenas. We saw that interview with the Arrested Development cast in the New York Times a couple of days ago. A very painful Break exchange. Break that down for folks who haven't heard that yet. Yeah, and it's, it's been one of my favorite shows for years, and it's been very upsetting to see these um, allegations come out about Jeffrey Tambor, who plays um, one of the main characters one of the, mm-hmm. in the Bluth family, um, mm-hmm. and his allegations about his behavior on a different show, Transparent, yeah. um, that has kind of now bled over into... Um, the reprisal of Arrested Development, which is they're filming new seasons. Yeah. Apparently um, he just yells a lot on set in a very, very mean way, at least for yeah. this show. So the accusation is that he's basically emotionally abusive. Hmm. So the cast of Arrested Development sat down with the New York Times for an interview uh, this week with one of their culture writers. So Pandeb. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So he asked the cast, they were all sitting down together, about an allegation of how he had treated Jessica Walter when she was... Um, working on Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. And then you watched and read, and if you listen to the audio, you could also hear. That's the crazy part. uh, You can hear the all the male actors who showed up for this interview lining up and falling over themselves to defend their coworker. It's a very 
amorphous process, this, this sort of bull that we do, you know, making a fake life. It's a weird thing, and it is a breeding ground for um, atypical behavior, and certain people have certain processes. But that doesn't mean it's acceptable, and no, the point I, is that things are changing, and people would respect one each other differently. I, I just realized in this conversation that I have to let go of the, being angry at him. And this is a veteran actress. Yeah, been around she's, for a while. she's been acting for more than 60 years mm-hmm. and has had experiences right. in all different types of sets and shows. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's hard because, honestly, Jason says this happens all the time. In, like, almost 60 years of working, I've never had anybody yell at me like that on a set. And it's hard to, to deal with it. But I'm, I'm over it now. I just let it go right here for the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think it's true that men and women see things differently. They see the news differently. They see all different types of work differently. And it's so hard sometimes to get people to see from your perspective why something is either important or why it's a problem. Um, And that's one of the reasons why it's resonating with women is because even if it's not that specific experience of someone screaming at you until you're shaken to your core, you still can identify with feeling like there's something that someone else fundamentally doesn't understand about your identity and how you're being treated. And Mm. it I mean, the interview went viral. They've now yeah. canceled the press tour for Arrested Development oh, really? um, in the UK. Uh, and I mean, Jeffrey Tambor, now all these allegations are resurfacing about his previous behavior and hmm. questions about whether or not people deserve redemption and deserve another shot um, yeah. and whether people can improve, which is something that we're seeing with, I mean, Harvey Weinstein, <sighs> irredeemable, you know, like yeah. how do you how do you turn your behavior around after something like that? Do, do people ever get another chance? And that's something that people started to talk about with Arrested Development, too. Yeah. You guys, I have three words. There are rules. This felt like a week of rules taking effect or being enforced, but I'm not sure what it all will mean ultimately. Okay. First situation, uh, these new NFL rules on take a knee. As we stated before, I would be willing to put money on the idea that we'll see some more knees being taken (laughs) in the new season. Uh, Second uh, thing that had me saying there are rules and annoying rules are, you know, all these emails we've gotten the last few weeks where everything that we use online has said, we've updated our privacy guidelines. It makes me realize how many mailing lists I'm still on for these things I haven't used in years. So the reason that's happening is because this week the EU, they put into effect the GDPR. It took effect on May 25th. That is the General Data Protection Regulation. Basically, these rules say uh, companies that work in the EU or any association or club in the block, they have to get your consent to collect your personal data. If not, they have to face fines. Uh, If they misuse your data, they will face fines. If your data has been breached, they have to let you know within 72 hours or face fines. So all these companies that are in Europe now have to comply with these rules. They have to email all their users and say, hey, we're doing this. But because a company like Facebook isn't just in Europe, we're getting those emails, too. So you get the emails and you're like, oh, they're going to do some things different. Here's the catch, dear listeners. The law is only like actually in effect in the EU. So they're sending you these emails as a formality, but they don't have to follow the same privacy guidelines that they have to follow in the EU. I mean, but would it really make sense for these enormous companies to have multiple privacy protocols, right? I mean, if 
if they're emailing all their users, that suggests that they don't really know exactly where people are, like where they're based, right? Because <laughs> like I've literally gotten like 50 of these emails and I'm clearly based in the United yeah. States. I think that we might see a new preliminary wave of protections hmm. for privacy. I think we're to see how things are different is if you challenge Facebook on some privacy or data issue. In the EU, there's going to be an infrastructure now to challenge. There might not be the same thing in the U.S. because you don't have to have one. But uh, all of these things for this week made me say, yeah, there are rules, but how much do the rules change things or matter? Anyway, that's what I was thinking about. It's time for a break. Coming up, we're going to talk about North Korea and why, even in spite of the big news of this week, Donald Trump canceling uh, the summit with North Korea in a letter... Even in spite of that news, things might not be as bad as they look. We're also going to call a woman celebrating Ramadan this month and how her faith has increasingly become political. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and we'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Newsy, the TV news channel with honest, in-depth context on the stories that matter. Newsy is for people who aren't satisfied with getting only the loudest part of the story. Newsy delivers more, more context, more solutions, and greater understanding of the people and events that shape our world. Learn more at newsy.com watch. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Laura Nelson, who covers transportation for the L.A. Times, and Clinton Yates, senior writer at ESPN's The Undefeated. You guys, quick question for you. Uh, Did you see the news this week that um, West Hollywood gave keys to the city to Stormy Daniels? Wait, you're pointing. Were you there? I was in West Hollywood when I got this news, and I briefly considered walking down the block to said event. So the, so this whole ceremony was 10 minutes, apparently. Stormy Daniels has come to prominence in the last few months over her claims that she had an affair with President Trump and that he and his team paid her off to stay quiet. But my favorite part of the entire ceremony was when Stormy said, quote, I'm not really sure what the key opens. I hope it's the wine cellar. Uh, <laughs> I want the key to L.A., but I want it to guarantee me that I can drive in the HOV lane. Hmm. It's, more, that of a key? S- it's more of a state policy. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, she knows. Transpo. Drop some transportation yeah. knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance. Today, we are talking Ramadan. This is the month of fasting from dawn until dusk that is celebrated by Muslims across the world. Ramadan this year is going from mid-May to mid-June. We had a listener write in to us saying that she wanted to talk about her experience with Ramadan. So we called her up. Her name is Minna Jaffrey. Minna, you there? Hey, Sam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You are on the line with two friends of mine. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hi. It's Clinton and Laura. Hi. So where are you? Uh, currently, I am in Virginia. Where in Virginia? Uh, around the Alexandria area, D.C. suburbs. Shouts to Old Town. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so during the entire month, you're not going to eat or drink from sunup to sundown? Yep. Okay. And besides that, are there like other things that you do to honor the month? Do you, is there more prayer, more other things? 
Yeah, so uh, Ramadan is the month when the Quran, the holy book, was revealed. So um, there is this prayer called Tarawi that goes on every night after sundown, where the aim is to complete the reading of the entire Quran uh, throughout the 29 or 30 days. But other than that, it's a lot of like trying to get back to your roots of your spirituality, connect with your religion in a more meaningful way than sometimes people do throughout the rest of the year. And there's also the dinners, right? The amazing iftar dinners where you break the fast. Oh, my gosh, yes. I've been able to crash a few of those with my Muslim friends. Oh, nice. In spite of not fasting, don't tell anybody. I Uh, won't, I won't. Everyone's welcome. (laughs) So I have seen so much coverage of Ramadan every year from American news outlets that approach Mm -hmm. it as this kind of like, whoa, all of you guys do this thing? I'm sure that doing this in America, you must get a lot of Americans who react with such surprise to the idea that people would fast for a month in this way. What is the most Mm -hmm. annoying or dumbest question you always get from (laughs) folks here who don't know? Oh, my gosh. It's got to be like, oh, my God, not even water? Without (laughs) fail, it always happens. And it's like, nope. No, it can't. Yeah. So you have an interesting perspective on Ramadan because you've done it in different places. You're Pakistani. Mm -hmm. You grew up in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, came back to the States for college, right, at Columbia. What are the biggest differences between fasting and having that month in different places like that? It's definitely um, a very different vibe when you're in the Middle East or when you're in a majority Muslim country where it feels like the whole place transforms for Ramadan. I mean, restaurants would be closed until uh, the iftar meal. A lot of places would just be shut down. You're not allowed to eat in public, whether you are fasting or not. So, you know, it feels very normal. Whereas in the States, it's like every time I turn on the TV, there's another commercial for food or (laughs) up on Facebook or on Instagram. So it's harder Um, here. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) When you wrote us to talk about Ramadan, something that you mentioned really stood out to me. You said that practicing your faith has become more political in the aftermath of the election. Mm -hmm. Is there ever a pressure in having your religion be political? I mean, like, I'm a Christian, and I don't try to think of it politically. I Like, I try to mm-hmm. not compartmentalize it, but it stays in a different place than my politics. Is it hard to have two different parts of your life kind of merge in a certain way, this very personal faith becoming a very public act in our current political climate? I mean, I'm of a generation that grew up, like, in a post-9-11 world, Hmm. so I feel like they've always kind of been connected to me, Hmm. and that Islam has been vilified in a way that I don't ever see reflected in the communities that I am a part of. So, in that way, it's it's kind of just my normal. Hmm. At the same time, like, I feel like there are times when I... If I say something, I feel like, oh, if I'm the only Muslim person who this individual knows, they might think this is what all Muslim people do. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not the case, because, I mean, there are, it's millions of people. Everyone practices differently. People have different beliefs. But at the end of the day, we're all kind of united by this overarching religious faith. That doesn't mean that everyone's practice is exactly the same. So I think there is kind of that pressure of representation sometimes. That sounds difficult for some days, I'm sure. Definitely after the election, um, but I'm lucky in that I have 
great friends and family who are supportive, and I know a lot of other Muslims, and that certainly makes it easier. Yeah. Last question, and then I'll let you go. Um, what What's the first food you really, really want to eat every day when you break fast? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so hard. Um, <laughs> my mom's samosas. Oh. Oh, I love a samosa. Yeah, that's kind of always okay. been a constant. That's never going to change. Okay. Hey, thank you, Minna, so much for sharing your story. Um, I hope the fasting goes well for the rest of Ramadan. And I know that a lot of our listeners have learned a lot uh, from hearing you speak with us right now. Thanks so much, Sam. All right. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye. Listeners, we want to talk to you about how you're processing the news, how you're processing your lives. We can talk about anything. Hit me up. Let me know. Drop me a line at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Laura Nelson, who covers transportation for the L.A. Times. Hello. Hello. And Clinton Yates, senior writer at ESPN's The Undefeated, also undefeated himself. I try. That's right. Um, So I wanted to talk this week about the big news of the week, that interesting, interesting, interesting breakup letter that uh, Donald Trump sent to North Korea this week. Um, You know, President Trump canceled this summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It was scheduled for June 12th in Singapore. There was talk of real progress in getting North Korea to at least move towards denuclearizing. This letter and this cancellation this week throws a big wrench in it. I, for one, needed some help making sense of this up and down and back and forth and hot and cold between the U.S. and North Korea. So I called up an expert. Uh, His name is John DeLore. Uh, We talked via Skype. He's a professor at Yonsei University in Seoul. And he's also an expert on Korean Peninsula affairs and U.S.-China relations. So I asked John if it's true that basically everybody seemed to be caught off guard when Trump abruptly pulled the plug on this summit. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, so with North Korea stuff, it's, it's kind of been one surprise after another. And this is the latest. I don't think here in South Korea, anyone was expecting it. And I saw a statement by like the president himself, the South Korean president, that he was very perplexed. So, you know, if the South Korean president who just met a few days ago in Washington with President Trump is very perplexed, then I think we can assume everyone's a bit surprised. Yeah. You know, in the crazy relationship between Trump and Kim Jong-un, there have been so many ups and downs. You know, for a while, there was a really rough rhetoric from Trump about fire and fury. Then there seemed to be a thaw and they were saying nice things about each other and the summit was going to happen. Now it's kind of in a low point again, it seems. What are the things that led to this current low point we see right now? Well, this started uh, maybe a week and a half ago or so. There was a statement that came out of uh, North Korea that really pushed back hard against the statements they were hearing out of Washington. You know, so um, I think a lot of this uh, this downturn has to do with language and narrative, you know, and the North Koreans being very unhappy with the way that the Trump administration was talking about this deal and was talking about Singapore and denuclearization. And, you know, basically the North Koreans were saying, we're not going into this if, if you're going to use coercive language, you know, that we're forced to do this. And I don't know, it was mixed messages coming back. But for example, after that first message from the North Koreans, uh, Vice President Pence kind of doubled down on the Libya thing. 
you know, Libya is the third rail here because if you go to the North Koreans and say, hey, we got a great deal for you, you can be Libya, obviously, the North <laughs> Koreans are not interested. Explain um, that for folks that have been living under a rock, the whole Libya part of the equation. Yeah, well, when you say Libya, the kind of denuclearization deal with Libya uh, was that Muammar Gaddafi gave up his stuff. Now, he didn't have even close to what the North Koreans have. He didn't actually have a nuclear weapon, but he had kind of the, the beginnings of a program. And so he gave that up pretty quickly uh, to the Americans uh, in return for sanctions relief and you know kind of a new relationship. And it, none of the other stuff really materialized so well. And Gaddafi had his own issues in Libya. Anyway, Libya eventually sort of imploded and... and uh, of course, NATO stepped in with U.S. leading the charge in France and started a bombing campaign. Uh, and then in the Civil War, Qaddafi ended up, you know, dragged through the streets and, and shot dead. And so, you know, that's what Libya means, right? So what do people on the Korean Peninsula make of all this? Um, I've heard reporters on the ground say for the past few months, people kind of just have to push through and live their lives in spite of the ups and downs of this weird relationship. But did mm-hmm. this news of the letter and the canceled summit shock people there? You know, South Koreans are pretty thick skinned mm-hmm. when it comes to North Korea because they've been dealing up close with this and all the ups and downs for a long time. There was some uh, some feeling of hope. I never saw euphoria, but there was some hope uh, around the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in, you know, because that surprised people that it went as well as it did. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would say there's been a lot of support for Singapore and people wanted to see Trump doing the same thing, you know, and trying to get this relationship with Kim Jong-un. So I think people really wanted to see President Trump go through with that. Are there other things that we're not seeing that might indicate some progress? Like, you know, so North Korea this week said it was going to dismantle a nuclear test site. Um, <laughs> and that was that was like something that was smaller news than this big letter yeah. and the blow up. Are there some positive moves that we're just not talking about? Well, we're sort of talking about them, but we're you know kind of discounting all of them, right? Why? So, well, because it's not the big stuff. You know, we yeah. want to see him turning over his weapons and shutting down somehow his missile program and all these things. And but you know, if you look at what's happened in the last five six months. First of all, the dog that hasn't barked is there's been no missile tests, right? Huh. Um, so and and that's something right there. I mean, we don't want him to continue testing, and he stopped. Uh, and then the irony of Trump's letter is the day that Trump called off Singapore uh, over kind of the tone that he's hearing from the North Koreans. Uh, the North Koreans did shut down their nuclear test site, which is good, you know. Yeah. And of course, he he also released the three American you know, detainees. So we always say the North Koreans, you know, don't get rewards for bad behavior. They've been on good behavior. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's the thing that's so interesting to hear you say. You breaking it down like that, I'm like, oh, they have been on good behavior. Why, why is the public posturing of their leadership and American leadership so it seems opposite of that. <laughs> well, so I don't know. There's two ways to look at it. The North Koreans felt they're not getting kind of credit for this. And the Trump administration is keeping up this pretty hardline rhetoric. You know, people like uh, Bolton and then Pence keep talking about Libya. They keep, you know, saying if this doesn't work out, Trump himself said if this doesn't work out, they will end up like Libya. You know, so 
at the same time, there are the joint military exercises. You know, another piece of this that the North Koreans got mad about is uh, there have been major air power exercises here on the Korean Peninsula, including a plan to bring a B-52, uh, which is, you know, one of the strategic bombers that drops nuclear bombs, to bring that up from Guam and, you know, fly it toward Pyongyang. So they're pushing back on this and sort of saying, look, we're giving. And OK, it's nice. President Trump saying thank you. But even your language continues to be kind of the old language. And so in a way, they reverted to their old language. And and then, you know, there's kind of a meltdown. Um, so, I mean, uh, the, other, the other thing, Sam, here is like we're working from just no trust. I mean, zero. Right. Like who do Americans trust less than North Koreans? And I mean, I've spent hmm. some time with North Koreans, at least their officials. And Did there's they no trust one in us? North Korea. No, zero. Okay. There's no one the North Koreans trust less. So, for example, when when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, I can tell you what the North Korean reaction would be. It's like, of course they pulled out of the Iran deal. They're Americans. You know, they make deals. And then, they and then the next president pulls out of them. That's democracy. You know? So, yeah. yeah. So it's like there's so much underlying distrust on the two sides that this process yeah. is very fragile. Do the events of this week – make Americans more or less safe when thinking of a nuclear threat from North Korea? Or do the events of this week and this letter and this summit actually have nothing to do with our underlying safety? Mm. Yeah, there's no immediate new threat. Uh, you know, Americans can continue to sleep at night, but we got to see what happens next. You know, it's it's really important yeah. that putting off Singapore doesn't mean, okay, we're dropping the diplomacy. Gotcha. You know, there's, there's some real diplomacy going on. And if you drop that, uh, the options yeah. uh, do get get a lot worse. Yeah. Do we have any way to predict what's going to happen next? What do you expect to happen next? No. I mean, okay. you know, there's been so much talk of optimism and pessimism. And I am someone who thinks engagement with North Korea is the right way and that there is there is a negotiation to be done and a process. But, you know, it was the Buddha's birthday this week. You got to stay Zen and you shouldn't say, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We have to be honest about that. And, yeah. But we should all we should all try to have uh, constructive approaches, you know, mm -hmm. and not fall into ruts. And there's a lot of ruts. You know, Americans, liberals and conservatives have deep ruts they fall into in their thinking about North Korea. So I yeah. would encourage your listeners to question their ruts, you know, and I sort like of that. Try, try and be zen. Yeah. <laughs> if we can't make predictions about what's going to happen next in all of this, yeah. what should we be watching? I guess the next phase is watch the two Koreas, you know, because um, South Korea has a leader who's, again, really committed to this process. And so we'll see if if he can do some work here to kind of bridge gaps, you know, so I would watch how the two Koreas uh, relate to one another. That'd be an indicator if the diplomacy can get back on track um, or not. And then, you know, watch China because Kim Jong-un has suddenly kind of revived a relationship with Xi Jinping. And I don't really buy the the theory that China's the problem here. You know, I think they want this process to work too. So I, I would say watch what the South Koreans and the Chinese can do to see if they, they can kind of resuscitate things and gotcha. get the initiative back. Yeah. yeah. Clearly more to come. I might call you up again to talk about it some more. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Good to talk to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So, listeners, since the time that we taped that call, as it always is with all things Donald Trump, things may have changed by the time you hear this. 
Trump and North Korea have signaled that they still might possibly meet. This is like... This is like almost a rom-com plotline at this point. <laughs> I was thinking more like high school boyfriend. <laughs> like, can't decide if you want to be together. Circle or not. yes or no. Yeah. It's something. So, all that to say, as Trump himself says, we'll see. All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, who said that? Support for NPR and the following message come from Newsy, the TV news channel with honest, in-depth context on the stories that matter. Newsy is for people who aren't satisfied with getting only the loudest part of the story. Newsy delivers more, more context, more solutions, and greater understanding of the people and events that shape our world. Learn more at newsy.com watch. All summer long, Pop Culture Happy Hour can help you find the best stuff, big and small. Summer is blockbuster and indie movie season. It's TV discovery season. It's beach chair binge watching season. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Laura Nelson, who covers transportation for the LA Times. Hello. Hello. And Clinton Yates, senior writer at ESPN's The Undefeated. Hello. Bonjour. Look at you. I speak one French, Sam. I didn't know that. Oh, do you speak French? Ta-da. <laughs> then I want you guys to introduce the next segment. I want you guys to say, now it's time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Maintenant, c'est l'heure pour mon jeu favorite. Qui a dit ça? Qui a dit ça? We're cultured over here. I love it. So this game is very simple. I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that, or at least get close. Get the story I'm referring to. Get a keyword. I don't take it that seriously. It ain't Jeopardy. Uh, also, because I don't take it that seriously, the winner gets absolutely nothing. That's the pride of winning. That's right. That's Props. right. Uh, you guys ready? Yep. yep. Here's the first quote. It is. It's not the most flattering, but it's nice. Who said that? It, it was about an oh. artist rendering from the week. Brandy Chastain. Yes. Oh, right. yes. I should know this. Yes. So oh. that was legendary soccer player Brandy Chastain. She was talking about this Hall of Fame plaque made for her that looks nothing like her. What the, is it with sports and these likenesses that are nothing like? I mean, is it that was it Cristiano Ronaldo? The, yes. the like, he also had horrifying meme like oh, statue. Yeah, it's I mean, bad. The, is it's it bad. the same artist? Well, <laughs> there are theories about this, which is that basically everything is a self portrait of the guy who's the person who's doing this Stop that are it. sort of and the theory obviously these theories are ridiculous but my feeling is everybody's got the same sculptor on the cheap and <laughs> the, the deal is just too you know it's too worth you it you get what you pay for get, right and you get what you pay for yeah so this plaque went up at the bay area sports hall of fame this week because brandy chastain was inducted into that hall of fame and there were major questions after everyone saw how ugly this image was and apparently the president of the bay area sports hall of fame says he won't even name the artist because he fears it will ruin that man's career right it's his cousin that's what i'm saying <laughs> he's getting the deal got it for the low yeah uh you're up one laura okay next. Oh, it's a competition okay <laughs> i didn't realize that next quote we have decided that you must leave this house immediately you have 14 days to vacate you will not be allowed to return it's the parents who sued their kid <sighs> On a roll. So this story, 
Have you guys seen this it's story? It's a classic no. millennial yeah. failure to launch. Let story. me tell you, Clinton, this is what avocado toast does to a young person these days. Uh, Christina and Mark Rotondo had to go to court to evict their 30-year-old son from their house. I'm sorry, what? 30-year-old son 30 from their years house? old. Went so, to court. Oh, yeah. yeah. The parents, what city in America was this? This was somewhere in New York. Upstate New York. So the parents said that they had given five notices to vacate over the last few months. He wouldn't do it. They offered him $1,100 to leave and go live somewhere else. He wouldn't do it. How much more do you want? They took him to court, and Michael, the son, has been acting as his own lawyer. The judge was very patient and praised Michael's legal research, uh, but kicked him out anyway. In the courtroom, Michael said that he needed more six more months in the house. Worst Tinder profile ever. <laughs> My goodness. (laughs) All right. Final quote. You ready? I'm really realizing how rare of a shot I got. It's about some viral audio of this week. Oh, the lynxes. Laura is three for three. <laughs> Laura is three what am I for three. Doing Sorry, I clearly Why? spend way too much time yeah. on the internet. <laughs> 93 bulls right here. This is amazing. Uh, this was a quote from a guy named Edward Trist. He was the guy that filmed those two lynx that were wailing back and forth at each other. There's no way to explain it besides just play the tape. Oh, Jesus. Story meeting in my newsroom. <laughs> this is Speaking me with my editor on deadline. Families right. are messy things. This is yeah. <laughs> Thanksgiving at the Nelson House. <laughs> so this audio uh, was from these two lynxes wailing back and forth in Ontario. Uh, Edward Trist, the guy who filmed this, he says that he's been getting calls from Australia and Germany and all over the world. Uh, he's received calls from places that have links, but they've never seen that before, he says. What were they doing? I guess they're about to fight. Trading recipes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have no I... idea. Um, so, Laura, you won. Can you give us your best Lynx whale to celebrate? <laughs> that was really good. Thank I'm you. I'm so glad I didn't win that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this is the prize I get for spending this much time on Twitter. <laughs> That was amazing. (laughs) So it's time to end the show. As we always do, we ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. We've got the audio here. Hit the tape. Hi, Sam. It's Amanda calling from New Mexico. And the sound that you hear is rain. It's raining here. We are ecstatic. It's been a very, very long time. And the rain means the world to us. So this has been a great week. Hey Sam, this is Wynn from South Carolina and the best thing that happened to me all week was getting hooded and becoming a doctor. I just spent my first week in my first house. I finished my first year of teaching. I achieved my lifelong dream of graduating from law school. I put in notice at my job so I could travel around the world for the next two years. Hey Sam, this is Bailey from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey Sam, this is other Sam from Raleigh, North Carolina. The best part of our week was finding out today that we both passed the professional engineering exam. Oh, thank God. Hi, Sam. This is Tony in Los Angeles. The best thing that happened to me all week was spending it with my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Anthony, in Cuba, and we celebrated his half-birthday. Hi, Sam. This is Amanda from Falls Church, Virginia. The best thing that happened to me this week was that we found out what was thought to be an obstruction between my mom's kidney and her bladder at age 75, 
was just a floppy kidney. I love myself a floppy kidney from now on. And my mama is cancer free. Hi Sam, this is Vanessa from Las Vegas. After the horrible events that happened in our city um, on October 1, the best part of my week occurred watching our new expansion NHL hockey team, the Vegas Golden Knights, punching their ticket to get to the Stanley Cup Finals. It was something no one ever thought they could do, and they have been instrumental in helping heal our city. So it was a, just an amazing thing to watch them do that. So go Knights, go. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Love your show. Bye. Bye. Rain in New Mexico and a floppy kidney. How do you not love that? That should be the name of this podcast, Floppy Kidney. Floppy Kidney. I'm so glad to hear that news, though. Uh, thanks to all the voices you heard there. And I'm always excited to hear of our listeners graduating and passing tests and being all smart and stuff. The voices you heard there were Amanda, Wynn, Susan, Nancy, Jenna, Simon, Bailey, and other Sam, Tony, Amanda, and Vanessa. Appreciate you guys so much. Thanks for sharing that. We listen to all of these that come in every week. I promise, keep sending them in. Uh, send me the best part of your week at any point during any week. Just email me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. What's the best part of y'all's week, guys? I This is lame, but I had a very productive week at work. <laughs> felt like I was on my game, you know, okay. and you know, there's yeah. some, something really something great just about just like on it. turning yeah. out a bunch of work and yeah. like doing it well and knowing that there's a long weekend ahead. I love it. Yeah. Your friend mentioned the Vegas Golden Knights punching their ticket to the Stanley Cup Finals. Well, your boys, Washington Capitals, are the other team ah. on the other side of the ice. And Hockey. And I am a massive Capitals fan as I am from the District of Columbia. All right. Very excited about this. One Mike day, was yeah. considering going straight from here to Vegas. Go to Vegas. And not yeah, even going that's home. The LA go way. to Vegas. I know. Drive to Vegas at so a we'll moment. See. Yeah. See what yeah. happens. Uh, we're going to go out with some Michael Jackson, smooth criminal. All right. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Uh, Steve Nelson is our director of programming. We had editing help from Jeff Rogers. And our big boss, VP of programming here at NPR, is Anya Grunman. And our newest member of the team giving us production help this week, Kumari Devarajan. We're glad you're here. Special thanks, as always, to our engineer who keeps me on the mic, Leo Del Aguila. All right, listeners, refresh your feeds Tuesday morning for my conversation with Jordan Klepper. He has the prime real estate of the half hour after The Daily Show uh, on Comedy Central. His show is called The Opposition. We talk about what it's like launching a political satire show in this current political climate. You want to hear it? Uh, thank you both so much. Salut, mes amis. Oh, you know what? Do my sign-off in French. Uh, thanks for listening. Talk soon. Go. Merci pour... Uh, I don't know how you say that. Écoute, I mean... Uh, Merci bien, mes amis. À la prochaine. That'll work. Bien. That'll work. That'll work. Au revoir. <laughs> <laughs>